Welcome, everybody, to the Independent Broker Podcast. Today, we have Laura with us on the show. Laura, welcome to the show. Hi, thanks so much for having me. I'm glad to be here. Awesome. Laura, we start the show with letting our guests introduce themselves. Tell us a little bit about how you got started in real estate, where you are today. You have a very unique story. That's why we wanted you on the show. So give us the gist and we'll go from there. So I was actually born the daughter of a realtor. So I grew up sitting around the dining room table asking, is there anything else we could talk about besides real estate? And now fast forward 25 years later, my children did the same thing to me. And actually my oldest child is currently in licensing. We have come full circle, but I got started at the ripe young age of 19. I had to work really hard to convince people to trust me at 19 years old. I also worked in a very productive office where everyone in my office was a multi-million dollar producer. And so I cut my teeth in a tough office and I had a great broker that really treated me like everybody else. I learned wonderful things. I had a great foundation. Um, and I'm from Virginia. Originally, I grew up in Virginia Beach. I went to college at the Old Dominion University. and But I've been selling real estate for 25 years and I've sold in Virginia, South Carolina, Tennessee, and now North Carolina. I've owned two residential real estate firms. I owned one in Beaufort, South Carolina. I owned one here in Franklin, Tennessee. And now I work, hang my license somewhere else in another firm. And I have a small team of seven that I operate. And I do a lot of coaching and training of agents all over the country now. So lots and lots of things to unpack here. Started as a realtor, then went to being a broker, back to realtor, back to broker, now back as a team leader. So uh, awesome, great perspective. So we'd love to hear your perspective from all the different angles. One question I was wondering about is you're the daughter of a real estate agent. Did you get a, ever get to work for mom? No, she wanted to. That was literally her dream, I think, was to work with me. But she would call me for advice all the time. And I would put my broker hat on and say, you didn't do this right. And she would get upset because she'd been doing it for decades. And I would tell her as a broker, this is not correct. And she would get mad. And I really think we would have mother daughter, we probably would have killed each other. But she really did want to work with me. I think she was proudest of me when I owned my company. She was just in awe of the fact that I moved to a city I didn't know anybody in and never lived in and decided I was going to open up my own firm. And I know that my mom was very proud of me and just how far I had come in my career to not be afraid to do that in a city I'd never lived in and then did it again in Franklin, Tennessee. But no, we never got a chance to work together. Was she a broker? She was not. Gotcha. She never got a license. Okay. So you kind of alluded to it. It's like you show up in a new city. Don't know yeah. anybody, don't have a sphere of influence. And not only do you still go into real estate, you go into real estate as a broker. And how does that decision come to, to come to go? A lot of people, I have discussions with agents all the time. A lot of people choose to open their own firm or become a broker because they feel they either think they can do it better than what already exists. Like we get into real estate because we either have a bad experience with an agent. We're like, oh, we can do this. If they can make this kind of money, I know I can do that. Or 
people get into leadership because they feel like it's easy money or they feel like, oh, this is the next step in my career to become a broker. This is the next obvious thing. I studied leadership a lot in college. I studied leadership a lot growing up and in other industries that I've worked in from time to time alongside with real estate. And my decision to become a broker was because I had already been a broker in Virginia, but I was not, I didn't have my own firm. I was a broker just under somebody else's broker's license. And I wanted to be, I wanted to make my own decisions. I wanted to run my company how I wanted to. I wanted to build something, a legacy that I was proud of. I wanted to leave a mark on our industry. And I really felt like owning a brokerage, pouring into other agents, and creating something from nothing was something that I could look back on and say I was really proud that I did that. And it came with a lot of hard lessons. Like the first time I swore to myself, I would never do it again. And then I was dumb enough to do it again. And I don't say dumb enough, but I was smart enough to do it again a few years later in another new city where I didn't know anybody. And I really thought when I opened my second firm that I would only be an agent of one that I thought, oh, there's a local agent here with me. Her name's Kathy or Amy Cannon. And I always tease her because she's the smartest broker in town. She only has one agent. It's her by herself. She doesn't have any liability of anybody or anything. And she calls her dogs, her coworkers. The reality is I thought that would be me. And the minute that I hung out a shingle and said I was opening my own firm, I literally went from five agents to 25 agents to 72 agents, literally in a year and a half, almost two years time. So it happened. I had a lot of very quick growth and I just attracted people who wanted more. I attracted agents who wanted a broker that was willing to pour into them, do one-on-one coaching and training. I attracted agents who wanted a culture. They wanted to belong to something and be a part of something. They wanted to be valued by their broker and a lot of the other brokerages in town weren't offering that. And so I felt like I had something unique that was the reason that I was never going to be by myself. People wanted to be near me. I wanted to work alongside me. So we usually ask the same questions, everybody, but it sounds like you're going to have three different answers to every question I'm going to ask. So feel free to have those multiple answers to the same questions. We usually ask, how does your brokers look like today? So in your case, is a team. How does your team look like today? But give us a little bit of rundown of all the iterations, right? The first brokerage, the second brokerage, and, sure. and the team right now. How did it look like in terms of how many people you had, what the volume you guys were handling, and what's the commission structure you were offering across, across all the different times and periods sure. you were uh, in the business? You're right. I got three different answers for that. You're good. All right. So the first brokerage, and again, I had come from very traditional models. So a normal 70-30 split, 80-20 split, you really couldn't get higher than 85-15. And I had worked for a very large, where I first got my license was a very large locally owned company that had 14 offices and thousands of agents. It was a very big independent unit, but it was still a very traditional brokerage with traditional splits. That's where I got my training, where I learned everything. And then when I felt like I was really good to go on my own, I left and went to one of the first 100% company models in the country at the time in Virginia. And it was a very small firm. They were not even members of the Realtor Association. And at that time, everyone else in the area was. So we were constantly combating. Y'all aren't even realtors. What are you? We still operated under ethical, but it just, we weren't members of the Realtor Association. And that was very foreign at that time. And so I had an opportunity to work at both the traditional model 
and a hundred percent model. And when I opened my company, I really tried to wanted to take the best of all the companies I had worked at and created something of its own. But I would say my first company was more of a traditional split where most of my agents were on 80-20. The owners of the Remax franchise in South Carolina actually ended up selling their franchise and came to work for me. So they were probably on a 90-10 or 85-15 just because they had much higher volume and didn't need me. And for me, they were key recruiters, meaning like key recruits that would help influence other people. They already owned a franchise. Those people that worked with them, that it respected them would come with them. And so I was willing to take a little less split because they were key hires in terms of building the rest of my company. And so I really, it's a very small town. There's only 26,000 people in Beaufort County at the time when I lived there. Of that, 13,000 probably had a real estate license. And so I think max I had the highest number of agents was probably 17 or 18 agents. And volume wise, we may have been somewhere. And this is again, I opened the company like a dummy in 2006 to 2010. Again, the market crashed in 2008. I sold my company in 2010 to the largest Coldwell Banker franchise in the low country for money. Nobody was paying you money in a declining market. I did get a little bit of money and, but our volume was probably like maybe 25 million, nothing record breaking or anything like that for, but I had 44 listings of my own when I closed, when I sold my company to Colo Banker. I stayed on contract for a year as part of my purchase agreement with them. And I worked at Colo Banker. So I did work at a franchise. And so I had that experience then. And then when I closed my firm after that year, I moved to North Carolina for 10 months. And I didn't care if I ever sold another house again. I was, I was really burned out from the market crash. I had 44 listings that I couldn't sell that all ended up turning into property management because that's all we had were renters, no buyers. Yeah. And it really just took a toll on me. And so I taught high school Spanish for 10 months and had the best year of my life. I played golf. I laid by the pool and I taught Spanish and I was living the dream, but I was only making $40,000 a year. I left North Carolina and moved here to Nashville. And within the first year or so of me being in Nashville, I was like, oh, the market's coming back here in Nashville in 2010. We were coming out of that. And I already had friends that were looking to buy or sell a house. So I was like, here we go again. I'm going to get another broker's license. And so I collected my third broker's license in Tennessee. And I started out working for the company I'm with now. And I was doing a lot of training and mentoring for a lot of agents. I was working on a very large team that was the number one producing team in Middle Tennessee at the time. We had hedge fund clients that we worked with. And so we were doing high volume. And I was doing a lot of training of other agents at another company. And I was looking at it going, you've done this before. You're training everybody else to make these other brokers money and you're not getting any return out of it. You're doing it as a favor to the broker because you're trying to contribute back to the industry, but you're like really pouring a lot of your time and energy into other people with no reward. And so I decided, you know what? My mother, I also lost my mom in 2016 and I opened my firm in 2017 in Tennessee because again, my mother was the most proud of me when I felt like I was in a position of leadership and really influencing other people to my benefit, right? Um, and I was really proud of that. So I decided to open 
another company. And that company, like I said, grew from five to 15 to 25 to 72 in three short years. So we were up to 72 agents, a commercial division, three assistant brokers, and a second location. So just rapid growth. Our volume and production in at the height of when I closed, I think we sold 62 million, which is not a lot for 72 agents, but 25 of those were brand new agents. That was my specialty of touring into brand new agents, coaching and training them, giving them a fast start where a lot of those agents were producing within their first 60 days instead of a year and not selling anything. So, but 62 million with 72 agents of which 20 or 25 were brand new. Nothing record breaking, but I was really proud of what I did there. But nothing to be ashamed of. Yeah. So what was the commission split over there? So that was also a very traditional model where I had brand new agents run a 70, 30 experienced agents after they sold a million and a half, they could go to 80, 20. And from there it was 85, 15. We also had a cap of, I think our cap was 15,000 or 18,000. I think it was 15,000. The thing that I learned about the caps, because I, I didn't have a cap in South Carolina, but what I learned about the cap in Tennessee was that a lot of the companies around me had caps that were on a traditional model. And so I decided to institute a cap. But the problem is I had a lot of agents that capped, but I did not learn until later how to stagger those caps so that we made money all year round. So what happened traditionally was that people, their cap reset on their anniversary date. And if all these people came in at the same time, which we had growth all at the same time, then their anniversary dates were stacked around each other. And those seven agents or eight agents or or 12 really high producing agents that were sold 20, $25 million a year, they capped really quickly And then we didn't have income the rest of, I had to work really hard to get income the rest of the year. So I had to learn how to stagger the caps to make sure that it made sense financially. Stagger with people who are going to cap and not cap all throughout the year. Yeah. So a lot of the brokers actually do the reset on a calendar base. So they're facing the same challenge of by March, I got the top agents capping or by, by February, I got the top agent capping and now it's a lot less income for the rest of the year. One of the things that we've learned along the way is to use a drip account. Basically you set up another commission account or income account, whatever you want to call it. And this is not my thing. This is coming from a book called Profit First uh, by Mikalowicz. And you just put all the income commission going into that account. And every month, one twelfth of that account comes out. So this way, no matter when the money comes in, it evens out for the next 12 months. Uh, It it helps with a broker that has that situation to move things out and spread it along, not getting in trouble. We had all this income here and now we got no income here, but the same expenses every month. Yeah. Or if you're in a market where you have seasonality, where you definitely have a hot market from March to July or August, and then it's dead in the winter or whatever. If you have highly seasonal markets, that's also a market where you would want to implement that profit first strategy of 112 and to make sure you bills when the sales are lower. Yeah. The thing I think I learned as an independent broker, really managing your expenses and keeping your overhead low were was what I learned the first time. That's how I got myself into so much trouble. Like the first time, just not only did the market crash and we lost every buyer pool we had, but I also had a tremendous amount of overhead that you know, if I personally, Laura Dahl, was not in production, I didn't, I had to rely on the rest of these agents to help cover overhead, right? So I had to produce and compete with them 
in order to pay all the bills and the overhead, which isn't also not an environment that you foster the best relationships with if you're competing brokers sometimes, right? And so by the time I grew the the second company to that many agents, I didn't have time to be in production like I was before. I was managing 72 people and wearing all the hats of the trainer, the mentor, the coach, the accounting person, the marketing, overseeing the marketing department, overseeing the admin people. And my personal production suffered in helping these agents grow their production. But I felt very proud of my impact on each one of their careers. I felt very, my responsibility was to train them and teach them to be competent, Mm -hmm. to train them, teach them to, you know, service their clients beyond the minimum expectations, but also to teach them how to get growth in their business, how to fish for themselves, how to build their businesses. And I do know that I directly was responsible for taking agents who were a $3 million producer and turning them into a seven or nine or someone who was a 10 and turning them into a $20 million producer. And those are the things that I'm most proud of is that I, yes, created a culture that even today, we closed this company in 2021, even today, the agents that I recruited to work for me are all still very good friends wherever they are. Like they still are very attached to each other. I had created a culture where we had very specific intentional activities and events to build culture within our company. And that part, I'm really proud of too. Touch about that in a few seconds. I think it's, you've had quite a few different commission structure. If you were smart enough or dumb enough, whichever you want to take it, to create a, a third brokerage tomorrow, what would be the ideal commission structure from your perspective? One that on one end gets you more revenue, more profit, and then at the same time, not hinder recruiting. Yeah. So I think it all depends on your marketplace. I'll say that first. Like you really got to research your marketplace and what's the standard, what's the norm around your market, because every area is different. And so if I blow into town and open up a firm and I offer something that's totally unique from everybody else, that sometimes can be bad for recruiting. And sometimes it's exciting because it's new, right? But that's not what people are used to. So one, you've got to just identify what's happening in your target in your market that you're in. I would say the other thing is that agents, you should have some cap. Like there, people don't want to, in my area, and all the areas that I'm licensed to sell, most of the people on a traditional split have a something to strive for, like somewhere to get to, hey, I can earn as much money as I possibly want. And I will stop paying in fees to the brokerage if I reach this level of volume. I think caps are important at least for recruiting for agents, I was always under other companies, but comparable to other companies cap. So most of the ones around me were 18 and I was at 15, or there's some companies in my market that are 25,000 as a cap. So we're offering something of value because they have a cap. The models where it's a hundred percent commission and it's just a fee-based model, those models, in my opinion, only work when you have a certain number of volume of agents and a certain volume of transactions per year and per month. Otherwise that model does not work. You'll go broke, right? Yeah. Yeah. So if you well, have less, it depends on what you offer in return. Right. If you don't yeah. give them anything in return, sure, then it doesn't really matter. But yeah. really, it's a unique model that I've have yet to see a broker that can do that model without what you just said volume. Yeah. 
No, I think when we ran the numbers, because the company I'm at now is 100%, it's a fee-based company like that. And when we ran the numbers within this company, in order to really make a profit, each agent had to sell seven units and we had to have a minimum of 32 agents for that to make money, for that to be profitable to make sense. I would just say, no matter what your commission structure is, you need to find out what is most important to your agents that you're trying to recruit. When I sat for recruiting meetings with agents, I came fully prepared to go over numbers with them and show them how I could help them make more money. But for most agents, it wasn't about the money. Mm -hmm. It really truly was not. Now you'll have agents that will leave you over 5%. You'll have agents that leave you over $32 a month difference in monthly fees, but that means you didn't insert value in enough other places that mattered to them. So to me, I think the more traditional split of but they need to be more favorable to the agent is the unfortunate part. As the owner, you have to have volume and you have to have regularly producing agents. And you've got to get rid of the dead weight of people that just hang their license with you and don't do anything. You need to put them in a separate program and they don't get the bulk of your time. They don't get the bulk of your resources or your tools. But a traditional model with low fees, a cap, and... Um, where the bulk of the fees are going, where the bulk of the things are actually tangible things that they're paying for, not just a desk fee, not just a technology fee, but what do you get with it? I think those are the best models that that produce income for broker owners, but also places where agents want to stay. So yeah. I tend to feel like the fee-based models and the 100% ones attract a certain type of agent where maybe the dollar is all that matters to them. And that might not be the agent you're going for. I'll put money, over, I'll put people over money any day of the week. Yeah. So recruiting is really something that interests a lot of our listeners. And I think it's fair to say you recruited over a hundred people across your business, even more. What's your secret? How do you recruit and how do you go from zero to 72 in two, three years, which is remarkable. So a lot of it were a few things. My first biggest strategy is relationship building first and foremost. In my opinion, you cannot hire a VA, you cannot hire an assistant, you cannot hire someone else to do recruiting calls for you. It is not as effective. Now, can it be done? Yes. But most agents, they most realtors have an ego. They like their ego strokes. They like to feel wanted. They want to feel needed, right? And they want to know who it is that they're going to be working for. If you're the broker. It needs to be personal. Don't slide into their DMs and a Facebook messenger with, have you heard about, I'm not going to name the name of the company, but have you heard the good news? We'll just call it that for Jehovah's Witness. But <laughs> heard the good news or, Hey, I've been seeing what you're doing and I'm, I, you're, you've been on my list to talk to for a while. That's not personal, right? You need to pick up the phone and call them, leave them a message, send them a video text, make it personal, find something about them that you value or that you think would be a great contribution to your company or why you feel like your company would be a good fit for them. But really how I was able to recruit a lot of people was that if I sat down with you, there was about a 99% chance you were coming to work for me. So I really didn't have that many that I had to sit down and, oh, they, I met with them, but they didn't come work with me. There weren't that many that decided not to. But the reason was because I really made it my job to get to know them. Tell me more about yourself as a person. What kind of things are you interested in? Are you married? Do you have children? What are your hobbies? Do you have pets? What's your life outside of real estate? I talked to them about personal goals in addition to their professional goals, but I really tried to figure out what is it that you're looking for in a brokerage? What's most important to you? And most of them would say, I want a place 
that commissions are important. I want to make as much money as I possibly can, but I also need systems. I need structure. I need support. I need tools, whatever that is. And then I listened to their answers and made sure that my presentation was curtailed to what was most important to them, which you think is a no brainer, but you'd be surprised how many brokers recruit from their products and their materials and not based on what the person said at all, yeah. but not based on what's the most important thing to them. The other thing that I did was how I was very successful in recruiting so many people was really not so much the one-on-one -on -one recruiting calls. It was I invited people from all agencies to attend classes, masterminds, team meetings, team socials. I did a monthly bus tour that you and I have talked about it before, but I'll be happy to explain the details of it again. But I did a monthly bus tour. I invited agents from all other companies. They were never, the intention of them was never to recruit but recruiting was a byproduct of spending time with them and getting to know them while they were present at my events. I never recruited when they showed up. As a matter of fact, I didn't even broach the conversation of recruiting until they had been to two or three of our events. And then it became a conversation. Would you like to sit down and have a conversation with what we offer? But that was not the intention of it. It was to get to know them. It was to show off what we did to introduce people to our culture right away because I had I was very blessed with agents who, when we welcomed a new agent, they made them feel warm and welcome. They It was all in how we onboarded them that set the tone for what their experience at our firm was going to be like. And so I wanted people when they attended our events to feel that without having to come on board yet. So we would, on our bus tours, there would be a group of agents that would make pe people from other companies feel very welcome and brag about what we do and how we do it so that it was infectious. You wanted to know more. You wanted to know what was happening at this place to come meet with me to find out what I offered and was it something that would work for them. Sounds like you were able to generate, to turn recruiting into a team sport instead of an individual sport. Correct. And that that's just phenomenal. They weren't Absolutely. highly incentivized either. It was not like we promised 10% or we handed out bonus. We did some small incentivization at the beginning to try to help grow faster. But most of the agents who helped recruit for us there was no agenda for them. It was just they wanted to work with people that they liked and recruit helped us recruit some great agents that they thought we could benefit from or that would benefit from being with us. Yeah, that, that's just awesome. How about the other side, firing agents? So I have had to let go agents before that just, the biggest thing for us is during the pandemic, I took a lot of heat. I think a lot of us did as broker owners and managers. So we had to make some tough decisions about our business. And not everyone agreed with some of our decisions. Do you close the office? Do you keep it open? Do you make everyone wear masks? Do you require people to get vaccinated? All the things that were very political in nature that people wanted to fight about and argue about. And there were people in, on my roster that we're doing everything we can and I'm spending a lot of money on our marketing and our branding and promotion of our brand and a lot of great agents who are working towards showcasing and highlighting that brand. And we're doing community service projects every month, working on exposing our brand to the community. And then you get people that jump on Facebook that are just diarrhea of the mouth, unprofessional. They made our brand look bad. And those are the people that I'm like, this isn't the right fit for you, unfortunately. And I know it's your personal space to write whatever you want on Facebook, but at a certain point you come back to me and you're a reflection of my company. Yeah. And if I 
if what you're writing is offensive and what you're writing is not in line with our vision and our mission, this is not the right place for you. So you've got to get rid of people who are bad seeds, who are bad apples, who destroy the culture that you're working so hard to build. If you are spending time, energy, and money building a brand and building a culture, you don't let people infiltrate that. And you got to get rid of them. The worst part for a broker owner, though, that we've talked about before, you and I, is we tend to get upset when agents leave us, right? The retention is a big deal. And I used to take it very personally. I used to have to take a whole day off. I would be so distraught that I had poured into this agent. I've really spent 25, 30 hours coaching them and training them or 200 hours coaching them or training them. Um, I even babysat one of my agent's eight-year-old daughter so she could go on vacation. She comes back from vacation and leaves me to go to another brokerage over 5%. So like we think that we've earned their loyalty. We think that we've learned their trust, their camaraderie and loyalty is really the biggest part of it. And they'll leave you over $32 or 5% or 2% or something like that. And it's going to happen. And the yeah. goal, I used to take it very personally. And then one of my mentors actually from the locker room, Jen Henry told me when she used to be my coach and she just said, Laura, and I laughed when she told me this advice, but she said, Laura, I want you to start thinking of your brokerage as an orphanage and the agents that you recruit as orphans. And I laughed and I was like, what is this lady talking about? And she said, I want you to think about an orphanage. You recruit agents or in an orphanage, the kids come into the orphanage and your responsibility is to take care of those kids and love on those kids, knowing that they will eventually be adopted. When we bring agents into our firm, our job is to love on them, guide them, coach them, train them, give them all the resources that they need, knowing that eventually they will move on in their career. Okay. Right? Yeah. Some, uh, oh, it doesn't some, make it any better. I'm sorry. Some will stay with you for life, right? Some of people will stay and you want them to. But at some point, people are going to leave because they have better opportunities or what they believe are perceived better opportunities, or maybe they move out of state or they move on to some other industry or whatever that is. But I felt like even, and I hear what you're saying, it doesn't take the sting away completely, but it did make me feel better knowing that I have a responsibility while they are in my care, while they're under my firm, to pour into them to the best of my ability, to give them all the skills that I'm proud of, that I had a hand in, and, to help them grow their businesses while they're with us. And you hope that you continue to earn their loyalty and continue to earn their trust and that they don't leave you. But if they do, knowing that you had a hand in their career, you wish them well, you stay professional. A lot of times those agents will end up coming back when the perceived opportunity is not actually what they were promised. Yeah. Now, I, right. and I get it when people move on and open their own brokerage. I can see that. I will encourage. I will give advice. Moving out of state, I'll stay in touch. I'll even offer is like, just because you're out of state doesn't mean you lost your Texas license. You can still send referrals. We'll be happy to send you commissions. There's a lot of things, but the ones that leave you for that $32, there's no way to think about it that will make it better. It's just like you said, it's, it's a perceived value. And if you think that $32 is going to make you happy, I wish you the best, but we both know the other way. And the reality is, did I offer enough value that you saw that you knew $32 was not worth leaving 
to go to a new company and have to get new signs and start all over with your branding or the downtime between the transitions. Like, again, if you thought it was worth to leave me over 5% or $32, I did not do my job in making sure you knew the value of what we offered. Or maybe yeah. you weren't fit to begin with. Yeah, it's probably the latter over the former right. knowing you. Now, I heard you say that I put money into branding. We were working to build our brand. We were doing events to build a brand. So this is the kind of conversation that we like to talk about is what do you do that is not direct lead generation activities just to build the brand? Because the goal for us, we're not Keller Williams. We're not EXP. We're not Remax that spend millions of dollars just to get the brand. And they have spent probably hundreds of millions of dollars in the last few decades to build a brand that everybody or almost everybody knows their name. In our market, I want to have when my agents hand out a business card or when my agent posts something on Facebook and they see the name of the company, then they say, oh yeah, I know your company. I know your brand. I've seen your signs out. We, for example, would do Google ads or Facebook ads that are not direct lead generation ads, that, but they're more brand awareness and we do charity kind of stuff and we pull our agents as much as we can into these things and tell them okay even if you don't show up just expand it and spend it and brand it out on your social media so what kind of activities did you guys do big thing when i say branding to our brand so i live in nashville which is also known as music city right yes. and my Business cards are in the shape of a guitar pick. Our signs are in the shape of a guitar pick. Our note cards are in the shape of a guitar pick. That's a continued brand and theme throughout our marketing efforts. Like we could stay consistent with that brand. Our company was known as the Music City Experts was the name of the company. And a lot of the activities that we did, I got more leverage out of community service events. I got more leverage out of our bus tours. I got more leverage out of my masterminds. And then obviously our market share in terms of my participation. I sat on committees with all of the realtor associations that I belong to. And at the time that I owned my company, I think I was a member of five. And so I sat on committees for a couple of those. I was much more active in two of them than I was the other three. But the presence, it wasn't more money that I spent because I learned that the hard way. I spent a lot of money in the first company like just establishing a brand with advertising, with sponsored ads, with pay-per-click and all the things. In the second company, I decided I was going to do more boots on the ground and get my agents more involved with helping continue the brand. We went out and bought signs for our people that said a our slogan, by the way, was deliberately different. And that was literally the motto that we lived by. And so we had signs made for our agents that said a deliberately different realtor lives here. And we went around and placed those in the yard of all of our agents. And so we may not have had listing signs around, but our logo was on those signs in front of all of our agents' houses. Our bus tours, we would slap a magnet on the side of the bus. It had our logo on it and our name and our website. And so we're, if you can imagine this big tour bus coming up and down the streets of neighborhoods with our brand all over the side of it, it was for an event but I got leverage out of that. We also did press releases for our community service events or for any of our agents that hosted events, which I was also very big at coaching our agents to do. I encouraged them to use press releases to get some more eyeballs on what they were doing. I just really tried to use more grassroots methods of 
getting my name out there, getting the company name out there, participating in more industry-wide events as well, then spending money on pay-per-click and ads and things like that. I got more out of the other things that had more leverage, I think, than spending money on just trying to compete with the big guy who has an ad budget of $100,000 a month. You're not going to compete with that. On yeah, ads. of course. Yeah. Not as an independent broker, you can't. So you've mentioned a few times the busters, right? And I've heard that story before, but for our listeners, please tell us what were you doing? What is the whole buster thing? Because I think it's absolutely phenomenal and it would be very successful tactic in today's market, in, in the market that we're transitioning into. Yeah, because houses are staying on the market a little bit longer. This does not work in a fast market where houses fly off the market in less than a day like this is very hard to pull off a bus tour but in a market where things are sitting a little bit longer or maybe you're in a transitioning market what i used to do is i would choose an area of my town i would choose seven to ten listings in a variety of price ranges I would contact those listing agents and say, I'm going to be doing a bus tour where we invite 35 or 40 agents from all companies across Middle Tennessee, and we are going to be showcasing and featuring your listing on that tour. You're welcome to be present that day and walk us through the house, but you don't have to be. If you have access on a century lock or something, we'll let ourselves in. One of the things I will provide to you at the end of the bus tour is we will give you feedback on all the houses. So each agent that's on the bus has a clipboard with sheets on it that they're going to give feedback. We compile the feedback and give that to the listing agent after the tour is over. The other part is that we invited agents from all other companies. So while it was not a recruiting event, it was an event to teach agents what they can buy for their money in various towns. It was a way to expose them to areas of town that they might not sell in. They don't usually go to that area. They don't know what's for sale over there, whatever it was. It was a chance for agents to get to know the different builders or be introduced to different agents. There was networking that happened on the bus. I saw deals happen on the bus where someone had a coming soon and somebody had a buyer need and they put the deal together before it ever hit the market. And I was able to recruit agents from the bus tour. Never, ever did I say, hey, if you don't like where you currently are, come work for me. Or did I make some recruiting spiel? But I basically just said, I'm so grateful that you were able to join us today. We have these every single month. They're always on the last Monday of every month or first Monday or whatever date you pick. And I want you to come back to the next one or whatever. And again, the energy on the bus was so high and so positive and everybody had a good time. We usually provided lunch on the box, like a box lunch on the bus or at one of the houses, depending on what we were doing. I usually had sponsors that were involved that would give gift cards or help pay for the bus or the lunch. It cost me about $1,200 every month to do the bus tour. I always recruited at least one or two agents every bus tour. And I also picked up listing leads because we went up and down the street with our bus and our name on it. And sometimes we would call listing agents and they would say, oh, we don't want to participate in that. Okay, no problem. But the guy next door did want to participate. So we pull up with the bus and the seller sees us and says, what is this? And we just say, we did reach out to your agent to ask them if they'd like to participate. They declined, but we are just touring the house next door. And they're pissed because 40 people just got off a bus and came to see their house that they wouldn't have had otherwise. There is a yeah. ton of social media exposure as well, because all the agents are 
doing Facebook Live or taking pictures of the houses and posting about the houses. So for the listing agents, they get 40 agents exposing that listing to their circles of people. So it is a brilliant tactic that one helps your agents get to know the area. It's almost old school. Like back when I first got a license, back when dinosaurs roamed the earth, we did caravans or office tours. And the only difference between this is we're not in a gang. We can all sit together. You invite people from other companies. You don't have to only stick with your people. And I found that a lot of the events that I did, I opened up to other agents from other companies, which then was a natural byproduct of them wanting to be a part of what we were doing. Yeah, you say dinosaurs, but realistically in commercial real estate, this still happens on a regular thing. Our commercial association does yeah. those industrial tour, retail tour and of different areas of the Metroplex. Sure. So, so that still happens. Sure. And it sounds like a fantastic tactic. And, and I can't imagine why a listing agent would ever say, no, don't bring a whole bus of people to see my listings. But that's, they literally throw themselves under the bus. Sometimes. Yeah. Yeah. Sometimes it's just a matter of, again, we were going into COVID and people didn't want that many people in their house. That made sense to me. Sometimes the agent was threatened. They didn't understand why I was trying to show their listing to other people. Some people didn't understand what we were doing. They didn't take the time to listen to the details of what we were doing or the benefits for them. And then some people just quite frankly are jerks and they just were not interested and that's okay. There's yeah. plenty of people. Are. I will tell you that most of the agents that were listing agents, then they then became passengers on the bus tour in future months because they were like, you do this every month. Yes, we do. And then we would recruit them to be on the bus. And then our, again, we started out with the little bus that only held 12 people. And then we moved to the bigger bus that held like 35. And then we moved to the big tour bus that held like 45 or 55. But we would sell a ticket. We would do host our events through Eventbrite. I usually charge them $10 just to secure their spot. If they showed up the day of the event, they got their $10 back. So it was a free event for them. If they didn't, we kept their $10. And that's just because realtors are famous for signing up for something, saying they're coming and then not showing up. And I would be left with 25 box lunches at the end of the day. Sometimes I made 60 or 80 bucks off of that <laughs> that tour bus. That's how we just kept people. They stayed if they RSVP'd and reserved their seat because we did have buses that sold out and then people yeah. would be mad and get a seat. So that was how we kept, kept people coming to when they said they were going to come and kept us from having extra lunches, like too many left over. So. Yeah. I can definitely see a waiting list happening on things like this. Yep. We've also done them with investors. So like for the public, we've done bus tours for like people who are interested in becoming investors. We've set up a kind of like a mini tour for them where it's only four or five properties because you can get realtors in and out of a house pretty quick, especially if you've got somebody with a teacher voice that says, come on, let's go. We've got five more houses to look at. But Typically with the public, they like to stay and look at every little thing and we just roll in and out. But we have done it with investors where we've taken them to certain neighborhoods, given them a rundown of what the rental rates are in the neighborhood, talked to them about the investment process, what types of process, whether it's multifamily, duplex, single family home, showed them the different products and then showed them the various areas where the rents are higher than others and 
that kind of stuff, educated them on short-term, mid-term, long-term, those kinds of things. So we have done those kind of with public as well, where some of my agents have reenacted the bus tour, but did it on a smaller scale for 10 or 12 people and picked up clients that way as well. Awesome. Let's switch gears and talk about lead generation. Again, three different companies, two brokerages and a team. How? What do you guys do for lead generations? What did you provide as a broker to your agent, if any? And how does that look like? So I will say this from experience in all my years, that if you are a broker providing your agents with leads, if you do not properly train your agents on how to follow up with those leads, how to go seven to 10 touches with those leads and how to convert those leads, you might as well just throw your money right out the window. Stop doing that. First and foremost, if you're going to provide leads, make sure your people are trained, make sure they know what they're doing, and then make sure you have coached them on how to convert those leads and how, what kinds of ways do you follow up seven to 10 touches? Because sometimes these internet leads, you don't get them on the phone until touch number seven or eight. And most agents give up after two, if they even make it to the second yeah, touch. I was about to say that. <laughs> so if they even make it to the second touch. So we want to make sure one, that if you are providing leads, which I always have to both of my brokerages that I owned, I gave my agents leads. A lot of companies charge 50%. If I generated the lead, I never did that. I just said, if you can convert this lead and you, then it's going to be your normal split. I'm not going to charge you a higher rate for it. I could have charged them 50, 50. That's normal. I just didn't. I, at that point, I just wanted to help them insulate their business as it was. I focus more on coaching my agents to fish for themselves and generic lead generation tactics more organically, working on the people that you know instead of the strangers that you don't. It's eight times harder to convert an internet lead than somebody that you know. So why work eight times as hard when you already have a group of people that know you, like you, and trust you? Work on loving on those people to generate opportunities for you. I would say that we've done all kinds. We've done OpCity. We had over $30 million in our pipeline on OpCity. So there were several agents closing every, closing a lot of deals a month on OpCity, but it is a play-to-play -play platform, which means yeah. you have to put up with some crappy leads and close those to get to the higher. And a lot of agents don't have the tenacity or the patience. They just see $60,000 and you can't buy a shack in Nashville for $60,000. So you can't even buy a trailer for $60,000 in Nashville. It's hard sometimes. We've done OpCity, we've done UpNest, we've done all of the referral generators. There's like a whole spreadsheet that you can find on lab code agents about the various referral partners that you pay after closing. We've all done those. I've done Zillow leads. I've done referral exchange. I've done just about all of them at some point in my life or some point in my career. And again, I'll go back to, you must get really good at establishing trust and rapport with people quickly. You must get really good at being tenacious and going seven to 10 touches to convert them. You must be really good at getting ghosted and ignored and not letting it bother you or affect you. And you must be really good at creating, like getting the people to respond to you. So often you have to use tactics like, I'm so sorry, what did I do? To get people to respond to you and go, oh no, it's not you. I just have been busy. And oh, I got a live one on the hook finally. Uh, but as far as brokerages, when I've owned my brokerage, the best lead generation sources were obviously ones that you create organically. Those are the ones that are going to have the highest conversion rate. They're going to be the ones that have the highest success of actually closing. But there's lots of people out there that pay for leads. And I would just say, if you're going to do that, make sure you're really good at converting them and going seven to 10 touches. Otherwise you're wasting your time.
Gotcha. And you answered my follow-up questions of, is there a different split for, for those leads? So today in your team, do you use any current systems like that for generating internet leads? Yeah. So we do, we do some paid advertising sponsored ads. We also do referral exchange. We, we get probably a hundred leads a month on referral exchange by themselves that are just, some are better. A lead is a lead is a lead. Some are better than others. You know, sometimes yeah. it's Sometimes it's a fraud guy pretending to be somebody else that we actually went and listed his land and he doesn't even own it. So that's a whole other discussion. And, but I, again, I'm trying to teach my team. I do provide those leads that come in those through those avenues. And my, I've been in this town since 2010. I generally have a pretty decent book of business that I also will, if they're not my direct client, they were referred or something. I will give those to my teammates as well. And a lot of our clients, sometimes we work together. So if I have a team of seven, and there are several individuals on my team that three of us might've shown our client a house, right? Mm -hmm. Just because of our schedule and how it works out, we all roll up our sleeves and help each other. We all, we all try to have a life work balance. And so sometimes we've got to share in people. And so I'll compensate people on the team based on how much they put into that particular client or something. But really I'm trying to focus on teaching my team how to produce opportunities organically, not paying for them. Gotcha. That that is obviously more effective and obviously generates more return on your time. Sure. Uh, but this is just what everybody's been doing recently. And I yeah. feel that the shift in market is going to shift a lot of that as well yeah. as it comes to it. So well, with these lawsuits that are coming down the pike from the DOJ and the FTC, how we get paid is going to change too, right? Like how we get paid as buyers agents is likely going to change in the coming years because we're not going to be able to just say the seller pays my commission. And so you're going to have to, it's going to be a lot harder to get an internet lead to pay your fee than somebody who already knows you and likes you and trusts you and is willing to pay your service fee because yeah, you already well. with them. Yeah, I have a different perspective on that one. We work with investors all the time. And sure. what I help our clients understand is at the end of the day, the buyer always pays everything. It doesn't matter what the paper says. The buyer pays everything, pays the real estate commission, pays the title insurance. They pay everything because the seller is looking at it and say, I want to leave this table with $100,000. So if I need another $6,000 for the agent, then now it's one hundred six, and I need... To pay the sure. title insurance 2000 now it's 108 so let's round it up 110 put it on the market at 110 it's like the buyer always pays it even if the paper says that the seller pays it sure. and it's a lot easier to work with an investor and tell him that because for them it's a number that fits into the excel file and it's either work or it doesn't work yeah. uh, on the home buyer side it's a little bit more challenging because there's a lot more emotional aspects that are tied to that decision Yep. So yeah, that's definitely going to be an interesting shift in, in our markets. We're starting to touch around technology and tools and all this kind of stuff. So what do you guys use today and what have you used in the past that you feel are is a great tool to work with when it comes to CRM and transaction management 
or any other tools, communication tools that you've been using? So as an independent broker, the biggest come like in the groups that I'm in, the biggest common questions that other independent brokers have are what tools are you offering to people? They always want to know about transaction management. Number one, I love paperless pipeline. I'm not a sky slope fan, but I realize some people love it, but I felt like it was harder to use than paperless pipeline. Paperless pipeline was also really cheap. It was affordable and you could archive your data and download your data each month and it's easy for the client, for the agents to use. That's the other advice that I'll give to you in selecting your technology. I've used platforms like we started out on Real Geeks. I used to be a la mode back in the day, and then I switched to Real Geeks, and then I tried KV Core. And I will tell you, KV Core is an incredible system as a broker owner. The bells and whistles that it has are very impressive. But if your agents don't take the time to learn even the most basic bells and whistles and how to use it, what are you paying for it for, right? So whatever you select has to be something that your average agent knows how to use and can capitalize on the tool to actually make money, to use the tool to leverage and help their business run smoother and more efficiently. I felt like KV Core was such a robust system that I had to break it down into small little mini sessions and take just one aspect that the program could do and create a video for that, teach a class on that, have a workshop where they actually are practicing it. And then we could go on to the next unit. But I had to do that myself. Their training team, they went very fast over at one hour calls where they expected the agents to know how to do it. And I'm sorry, we're dealing with a lot of agents who are not tech savvy, who barely can turn on a computer sometimes. And you just can't choose platforms that if they're afraid of it, they're not going to use it. So if they're not using it, you're spending money on a tool that's not valuable to them because they're not using it. Right. So in my opinion, I really, I feel like whatever you choose has to be pretty user friendly or it has to have a robust training program or the ability to break it down into small little manageable segments. They don't have to know everything there is to know about KV Core. I could send them to a YouTube channel and they could watch 500 videos on KV Core and all the things it does, but will they? No. So you have to give them the parts that they can digest. What's most important that they know how to do? Work their CRM and promote their business. Teach them those two things and then send them on their way. But don't also spend all the money on something that has 9,000 bells and whistles that nobody's ever going to use. And then realize that you're going to have to do the same training multiple times with the same agent because they see the training, they go, great. And then they don't touch the system for a few weeks and now it's all gone. Forgot whatever you trained them, you have to come back and retrain. No, because we've had to do that that over and it's okay. If they retain 20% every time you're in there, after the third or fourth time, they're going to be pretty independent. So just be okay with that. But you're going to have to train again and again over the systems. And realistically, we're hiring the people, at least on the residential side of things, that we want them to be the social butterfly, the happy, they go out and interact with people versus the techie, let me have all my systems and organization in, in place. So that talking about disc personalities and all that, you want the sunshine, you want the yellow. So they need help. And one of the things that we use in our brokerage to help with these things is we have a VA. So mm-hmm. for transaction management, we use a realty back office and okay. they all have access and they all have the responsibility over the data of their transaction. Sure. But when they, but to get started, all they have to do is send their contract over to our transaction coordinator and she'll start everything for them. 
she'll load it up, she'll put the documents in there, she'll go to the MLS, she'll get the information with the address and how many bedrooms and all that. And she'll pre-fill as much as she can for them. And then all they have to do is come in, make sure all the data is correct, start checking the boxes on the transaction checklist right. and work through it. But we help them get started. And we'll do my, my approach is if I can get as much as I can out of the non-sales generating activities off your hands, then I'll try to do that. Yep. And I did, when I owned my second company, I did hire a contract to close person that would handle a contract to close for the whole office at my expense. That was one thing I was willing to invest in to take off of their plate, which I also thought and saw as a benefit for recruiting that, hey, you don't have to pay extra for a contract to close person. Let me show you how much money I can save you. And that person has been personally trained by me. All their communications have been written by me and I'm overseeing their files. They, I can assure you they're doing it correctly because they're being trained by me personally. Yeah. But like I said, it was not a quick adoption for my agents. Not everybody embraced that contract to close person. Some of it could have been a personality conflict. Some are control freaks and they like to maintain control over their files. And then there's others that they did embrace it. They thought that contract to close person was their personal assistant and asking them to do all kinds of things that were outside of a contract to close responsibility. But no matter what, and in my experience, I have found you're also dealing with adult learners that learn differently. Yeah. Not everybody learns the same way. And then you've got people who are more hands-on than others and more techie than others. And you've just got to find a way as a broker owner, how can I meet everybody where they are without, excuse me, without losing people to the technology pulp, right? Like yeah. we're too over their head. They don't, they're not interested. Yeah. And they just won't do it. If they get frustrated with the system, they'll just stop using it and there's nothing you can do about it. And they'll just raise their hands and say, I can't. As a person that's been a broker, not a broker, been a broker, not a broker, what is the hardest thing about being an independent broker? I think the hardest thing is not having a mentor. I think it can be very isolating as independent brokers. You're at the top in your company, but we don't all have a mentor that we can go to and say, how do I do this? How should, you know, tell me your tips and tricks. We have to learn the hard way a lot of times. Some of us have to open two and three companies to figure it out. And I just feel like we, now I think there's more resources available with these independent broker groups that we have on Facebook and things like that. But when I first opened my first company, there was no one. There was no one I could call to ask questions. There was no one that I had in my life that could walk me through, how do you set up this? What's your best technology advice? What I just had to figure it out on my own. And so I would say the learning curve is very steep. You have the autonomy to choose whatever kind of company you want to have and what you stand for and the types of agents you want to recruit. And I think that's a beautiful thing, but it's also a lot of responsibility. And that's the other part is that we are responsible for everything these people do. Our license is in jeopardy for everything they do. And we don't know what they're doing 90% of the time. Yeah. So I would say too, that I think if you are a broker owner, you really need to invest in leadership skills and leadership training because you have a broker's license does not make you a leader. Most agents get to be brokers because either that's the next step in their career or they think they can do it better or they think, oh, this is an easy way to make money off of other agents. And most do not have leadership skills 
to help agents actually grow their business or to help run a company. They just are in a position that they're not trained or or prepared for. And yeah. so I would say the hardest part for me was finding mentors to make good decisions from other brokers who had done this before instead of me having to learn the hard way. And then the other part is just establishing myself as a leader and as an entrepreneur. Was I a leader that I could be proud of for my company? That's great. On the flip side, what's the best thing about being an independent broker? I think having a hand, of course, the type of broker I was, I offered one-on-one -on -one coaching for every one of my agents. They had access to my calendar. They could book an appointment with me anytime. If I had an open slot, they could slide into it. I and mean, we, I would work on whatever they needed help with. So if they wanted foundational if stuff, if they needed help on their presentations, if they needed help on a particular listing they were trying to land, whatever it is, they had access to me. And I would say the best part of being a broker was having a hand in each individual agent's career, feeling like I was responsible for a lot of the growth that they had. I was responsible for what they learned, knowing that I poured into them everything I could have. And that I had a, I did feel like I, I had a hand in the legacy of contributing to my industry and my community in the leadership that I provided to these agents. I know for a fact that a lot of agents who have worked for me are better agents because of the time that they were with me. Yeah. And in if my you don't mind. <laughs> yeah. If you don't mind me adding, you made mom proud, which is also yeah. very important. I appreciate that. So what's the goal for 2023? 2023, I have a team of seven agents that are working for me. I never intend on growing, but you know, again, I'm still trying to stay small for that work-life balance that I'm on right now. That track, I'm an empty nester. My two kids are grown and out of high schools. I can live wherever I want in the country right now. And I can take whatever clients I want to, not because I have to. And I would just say I'm working on growing my coaching and training business with other agents all over the country. I'm working on building my team and helping them learn how to fish for themselves. Our goal for 2023 as a team is 50 million. So it's not record breaking, but that would be a great number for us to hit. And I want to spend some more time with my family. They got the crumbs while I built my career for the last 25 years. And it's now my turn and their turn to get some time with me. I've poured into so many people for so long that they really truly have gotten the crumbs. And so my goals are really not to be the highest producer and not to make bazillions of dollars, but to actually live my life that I'm proud of that is meaningful and rewarding to me at this stage in my life. Awesome. And I'm sure you'll be very successful in achieving your goals this year. So one last thing before we close this thing up, what's your best advice for an agent that feels they're ready to take that next step to open their own brokerage? What would be your best advice? One, I teach a class on, I have a book and like we talked about this the last time you and I spoke to you, but I actually have a book outline waiting for a publisher of if you're thinking of opening a brokerage, like you should read this book. So that'll be on the presses sometime soon, maybe next year. But in the meantime, you definitely need to find a mentor, find someone who has done what you're thinking of doing. Pull five or six brokers in your area and gather intel from them about their various models that they have, their pain points, their pressure points. What's the questions you ask me? What's the most rewarding thing about owning your own brokerage? What is the most difficult? I would also say, make sure you have money. Make sure you have money saved. And you laugh at me, but there are lots of people who open a shingle, open a business with $10,000 and that doesn't get you very far. That's not enough money. 
And the more you start adding overhead, you need to make sure you have the financial strength to run a company and operate a company. And is it going to affect your personal finances? If you start opening a brokerage and you grow like I did to 72 agents, your personal production changes. Can you afford that in your family? Get a mentor, do your research on the other companies around you. Make sure you have the financial strength that you need to open the company that meets your goals of where you're headed. And then the last thing I would say is just work on yourself as a leader. Make sure that you have, I also have a checklist. If you're thinking of opening your own brokerage, I have a checklist that you guys can have. You can email me and I'll get it to you for free. But it's all the things you need to consider when you're opening a brokerage. You have a lot of decisions to make. And so the lab, I would just say, follow that checklist, gather intel, and then make sure that you're developing yourself as a leader, that you are the kind of leader that your agents are going to want to be loyal to, the kind of leader that attracts people, does not repel them. The other thing is I want you to be the kind of leader that your agents never have to apologize for you. Yeah. That that you, they are proud to work with you, that they're proud that you are the leader of their company and that you provide value to them in a way that it doesn't matter what new shiny bell and whistle that this new company around the corner comes up with. They have earned your loyalty because they know you care about them as agents. They know that you are invested in their future and you're invested in them as people, not just the paycheck that they bring with them. Yeah, that, that's fantastic advice. Laura, this has been a fantastic show. Your unique perspective brought a lot of value to our audience. If Absolutely. anybody wants to reach out, maybe get a coaching session, maybe figure out where they can buy the book or just chat, how can they reach and find you? And we'll put everything in the show notes, of course. Awesome. So I am Laura Dahl, D-A-H-L, like Roald Dahl, the author. You can find me on Facebook. You can find me on Instagram, but I'm at Laura at MusicCityExperts.com. And that's also where you can find me and my team and more information about us is MusicCityExperts.com. You also can call me at 615-507-0481. I hope you're ready for that. <laughs> All right. No problem. So thank you so much, Laura, for being on the show. I really appreciate you coming. Thanks for having me. I really appreciate sharing my, given my experience. It's been a fun ride. That's for sure. So I've learned a lot along the way and happy to share with others. So you don't awesome. have to same traps. <laughs> so. Awesome. And for you, the audience, if you want to listen to more episodes, learn from more experienced brokers like Laura, please subscribe and listen to our podcast. Thank you. Awesome. That was awesome. I learned something new. I hope you did too. And if you want to learn more from our expert, please subscribe to the channel and share with your friends. <laughs>